Thanks for joining us for KMUN's November 2020 election coverage, a series of shows to help inform voters in our region about their options in this fall's election. I'm KMUN News Director Joanne Rideout. If you'd like to see the full rundown of our election programming, go to our website at coastradio.org and click on Lower Columbia Pacific Region Election Coverage. That will take you to a calendar listing for all of our election shows with podcasts and video links for past programs. Today's show covers two issues on the November ballot. First, the election for representative for Oregon Legislative District 31, currently held by Representative Brad Witt. Later in the program, a look at Clatsop County Ballot Measure 4-205. Approval of this measure would prohibit Clatsop County employees or officials from enforcing any local, state, or federal law or regulation that restricts a person's right to keep and bear firearms, accessories, or ammunition, or use any county resources to enforce such acts relating to firearms. First, we'll hear from incumbent Brad Witt, who is running for a re-election as representative for Oregon Legislative District 31. KMUN's Jacob Lewin talked with Representative Witt. Brad Witt is the state representative for Oregon District 31, which includes Clatskanie and all of Columbia County. He has served eight two-year terms in that office and is running as a Democrat for re-election. Brad, you've been in the legislature for a while now. What first made you want to run? I made the decision to run for the state rep's uh, position for House District 31 back in 2005 because our district at that point did not have a state representative and we needed someone who was going to be a strong voice for workforce and economic development in our district. And that is principally what I have paid attention to since I first got involved in the legislature. I think it's uh, critically important for folks to be able to have good jobs and for us as a government to provide a sound infrastructure so that business can go about its business employing workers at uh, uh, family wage rates. Absent good jobs, there's no anchor either economically or socially. Can you name a bill that you sponsored and passed to that end? Yes. One of the first that I did, and um, certainly the first such bill in the state of Oregon was an effort to return shop classes to our schools. Of course, that was a uh, program that was successful for uh, many, many decades and many generations in uh, Oregon's school system and um, began to be eliminated uh, in the 70s and 80s and left behind a lot of our students who were not college bound. And um, if anything that we've learned in terms of uh, keeping kids in schools, you never know what it is in terms of uh, coursework that uh, students become excited about, and that may be the very reason that they stay in school. Oregon has proceeded to expand uh, shop offerings in uh, school districts throughout our state. And we've heard nothing but good about that. Oregon has one of the lowest high school graduation rates in the country. At times, we've ranked 49th, although lately it's been improving. I know you think efforts to bring back vocational education, including your bill, which you just mentioned on restoring shop classes, have played a part in improving the rate. Do you have an example of something else you've been involved with, with that goal? Subsequent to that, Senator Johnson sponsored uh, legislation to offer top-notch 
workforce development in the metals manufacturing industry, legislation that um, she started and which I have been very pleased to be able to support throughout the process is making SCAPUS and uh, the Oregon Metals uh, Manufacturing Institute one of the world-class uh, training centers for metals manufacturing. And among the various crafts and skilled trades, that industry is among the, uh, the highest paying and it is a result of some of the highest skilled. And in addition to providing all of the uh, high skilled uh, training at the center, it has attracted a number of leading metals manufacturers from around the world. We were talking about the pandemic earlier and you said people are getting lax about following the rules, getting fatigued. What kind of job do you think the governor's doing, and should the legislature be more involved? I doubt that there's any one of us that isn't fatigued as a result of this pandemic, whether it's not being able to go out and enjoy a Saturday night out or a middle-of-the-week evening meal or just uh, dropping by friends' houses and uh, socializing. Human beings are social people, and that's all part of our nature. And unfortunately, this pandemic, this deadly disease known as COVID-19, has caused much, if not most of that, to come to a screeching halt. With that said, I think our governor's reaction has been one of trying as best she can to contain this virus. I mean, the, the number one vehicle for spreading the pandemic is close contact with uh, someone else who's already infected. And our governor's efforts to limit social gatherings, to require face masks, and to attempt to uh, have as broad-based uh, testing regimen as we can possibly do as a state have all been exceedingly effective. And I think that that is precisely the reason why we see not only the total numbers, but the rate of uh, infections in Oregon being in the, uh, I believe it's still the lowest fifth in our nation. So my hat is off to the governor on that. We've just seen Warrington schools open to in-person learning and then soon close using state guidelines or metrics. Are the metrics too tough or not tough enough? Jacob, the uh, the metrics are sound. The 5% uh, infection rate, that is a measure of the rate of infection. It has every appearance. When folks move from isolation to uh, social contact, not surprisingly, that disease begins to spread. We have seen it in schools. We have seen it in food processing facilities. We've seen it in sports teams. We see those infections spreading. We saw it after the Memorial Day weekend, and unfortunately, in the wake of the Labor Day weekend, which was a beautiful, sunny, warm, inviting day, and, and folks are, uh, are understandably tired of being cooped up at home, went out and enjoyed the weekend, perhaps to an extent that may not have been wise in terms of trying to contain the disease. We have seen COVID rates shoot up very substantially across our state. The lesson to be learned here is while we have been successful in containing this pandemic in the state of Oregon, to the extent that we begin to socialize again, it has every appearance that we can expect infection rates to begin to increase once we begin to increase the socialization. It's not unexpected, it's not rocket science, 
and therein lies the dilemma of how do we begin to normalize our everyday lives, uh, education experiences for students, work for uh, those in the workforce, child care for those who need it. How do we begin to get back to a normal life knowing full well that these interactions it, virtually every turn have resulted in increased infection rates? Quite simply, we may not be able to have the levels of social interaction that any one of us would wish that we would have unless and until we have an effective vaccine. Brad, you supported a bill to make vaccinations mandatory in Oregon, except for medical reasons. It didn't make it through the state Senate. Do you think that might come back to bite us when a COVID vaccine becomes available? I think we have a choice. Oregonians, by and large, have made good choices, stressing the uh, success that we have enjoyed in having relatively low rates of infection uh, throughout our state. I have to believe and trust in the good judgment of, uh, of individual Oregonians that the opportunity to immunize themselves and their families against this deadly disease will be a logical and good choice for the vast majority of people. And quite frankly, at the point that we enjoy what is often referred to as herd immunity, the vast majority of people being immunized against the disease, that is what will spell freedom for all of us and the ability for us then to be able to re-engage in the social interactions that so many of us, and myself included, are seriously missing and, and so, so much craving for. All the forest fires we've seen recently in Oregon and California have been just disastrous, of course. Do you think that human-caused global warming is responsible for those forest fires? A absolutely. I mean, um, it's as true as uh, if holding a pen in my hand, if I drop that, it's going to land on the table. And if I repeat that exercise a hundred times, I'm going to have the same result. There is no scientific question but that human beings and our emissions of uh, carbon, among other greenhouse gases, are largely to blame and are, are the source of uh, global climate change. You voted against cap-and-trade and cap-and-trade cap light, both anti-global warming measures. Do you think Oregon has a role in reducing greenhouse gases? I absolutely did. If anybody tried to write a bad piece of legislation, they certainly succeeded in that instance. I had my own carbon emissions alternative, which I would be happy to share with anyone, but it was a much simpler, less bureaucratic, and more efficacious means of not only reducing carbon, but keeping both the invested money and the resulting benefits here in the state of Oregon so that it was Oregonians who were benefiting from their investments and benefiting from the reductions in carbon. So while I do not in any way differ with the uh, absolute need, the compelling need, the moral mandate of having to reduce carbon, there were and are vastly more efficient means of doing so. And, and, and because of that, 
I would be exceedingly surprised if we see yet a third go around on the carbon reduction on the same basis. I think that uh, folks have finally come to the realization that there's a better way without jeopardizing various uh, economies, particularly a rural economies here and in, in, in across our state, as well as sending a lot of um, our money to far off places. What would your carbon bill do? Certainly. My carbon bill was uh, was based largely on a model after the uh, Oregon transportation model, where we improve multimodal transit in, in, in the state. We would have set up a uh, commission of folks who would, um, on an annual basis, put out requests for proposals for carbon reduction. Any individual, any business, any nonprofit could apply for a uh, grant to reduce carbon and presumably the commission would would approve the best projects uh, for the best biggest bang for the buck if you will the money would have stayed in oregon once the projects were let they begin instantly and off we go the revenue to uh, to support that program would have been identical to uh, house bill 2020 so i didn't see i didn't see the whole bill as uh, erroneous, uh, merely the, the manner in which it, it became operational. I think that the, the, uh, the collection of the revenue that we would use in, in our proposal for the grants was, was a sound approach. As with national politics, the politics of the Oregon legislature have become more polarized and divisive. How can we change that? Yes, and, and I'm certainly an advocate for reaching across party lines, and I'm, I'm known in the legislature as uh, one of those folks that uh, reaches across that aisle more than than probably uh, 90% of the other legislators. So any opportunity to increase that is good. I think this is all part and parcel in answering your question of politics of, of the extreme, the extreme left versus the extreme right, and uh, never shall the two meet. And I think that it's uh, incumbent upon us, uh, particularly those of us in leadership, to know that the party that's in power has the obligation to make sure that um, we run things in a collegial manner, making sure that we go the extra mile to be able to involve the minority party, not only in um, the day-to-day affairs, but the, the planning and outcomes of uh, the legislation that we pass. Nobody wants to be cut out of the herd. And I think all too often an arrogance, oftentimes unintended, but an arrogance of power, that when you have that power, it's just easy to make a decision. But oftentimes the decisions that you make in, in that manner are decisions that are not embraced but um, are resented. And um, bringing people along allowing the process to work, fully involving uh, folks from uh, all parties and from the, from the greater public, and, and always uh, the decorum that's necessary in the legislative process are all helpful to um, de-emotionalizing, as I say, what has become a, a situation of politics of extremism. Brad Witt is the state representative for District 31, including Klatskanai and all of Columbia County, and is a candidate for re-election. And that was KMUN correspondent Jacob Lewin's interview with Oregon Representative Brad Witt, who's running for re-election representing District 31. Witt's challenger, Brian G. Stout, declined to be interviewed for this program. 
Next, we feature excerpts from an earlier show that aired last month on The Conversation, KMUN's live call-in show with host Graham Nystrom. In this show, Graham talked with supporters and opponents of Classip County Measure 4-205, a firearms measure that will be on the ballot for voters on November 3rd. Approval of this measure would prohibit Clatsop County employees or officials from enforcing any local, state, or federal law or regulation that restricts a person's right to keep and bear firearms, accessories, or ammunition, or use any county resources to enforce such acts relating to firearms. Here's Graham on The Conversation, which originally aired on KMUN September 30th. Today's conversation is about ballot measure 405, 4-205, this is a Clatsop County measure, which would prohibit enforcement of certain firearms regulations by county employees. Our two guests that will be speaking in favor of the ballot measure today are James Hoffman and Rob Taylor. And our two guests speaking against the measure will be Laura Allen and Sheriff Matt Phillips. And so joining me first is James Hoffman. James, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on the conversation. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start the clock. You've got 12 minutes to speak in favor of ballot measure 4-205. All right, thank you very much. Um, what does the Constitution mean to you? Does it mean our freedoms, granted to us by our founding fathers and our Father in Heaven? I say yes, it does. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are the driving force behind the freedoms that we enjoy today. If you take away one of our rights, we lose all of our rights. The Second Amendment was granted to us so we could protect our rights against a tyrannical government and for people who threaten our families. The safest places in America are the cities and the states who have the fewest and least gun restrictions. The most violent cities are the ones who have the strictest gun rights. Let's take a look at Chicago. They have some of the strictest gun laws in America. Every year, Chicago has more people shot than we have had shot in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let that sink in for a minute. More people are shot in an American city every year than two different wars. That should scare you. It does me. In the course of human history, the abuse of authority by men through the arm of the state is not an uncommon event. In America, we have safeties that help prevent this. Ben Franklin said... Those who give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Ballot measure 4-205 gives us back some of our liberties that have been taken away. Every year, the current supermajority in Salem keeps chipping away at our basic rights. The Second Amendment states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That means we have the rights. They have, they have none to take them away from us. The Second Amendment to the United States Constitution protects the individual right to keep and bear arms. It was ratified on December 15, 1791, along with nine other articles of the Bill of Rights. The District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court affirmed for the first time that the rights belong to individuals for self-defense in the home, while also including that the right is not unlimited and does not preclude the existence of certain long-standing 
prohibitions, such as those forbidding the possession of firearms by felons and mentally ill. Our founding fathers gave us four realms of government, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. Each has its own role. When one invades another jurisdiction, we find chaos and tyranny. That's what's happening every day in Salem. Our legislators know they are taking away our basic rights, but do they care? That's a simple answer. No, they don't. They're after a power grab, nothing but pure, unadulterated power. The more they tax us, the more they regulate us, the more power they have over our lives. George Washington started the revolution over taxes. King George tried to disarm his people because he was afraid of an armed citizenry. Our current government in Salem is afraid of an armed citizenry, too. We need to stop their power grab before it continues and gets out of control. According to FBI statistics, around 250,000 times every year, a legal gun owner stops a criminal. You don't hear about that on most news sources. Why? Because it doesn't fit their narrative. The government will tell you that they are doing this for the safety of the people. That's code for... We will take away more of your rights. Remember, those who give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. I have both a military background. I was armored recon airborne assault specialist and as a correctional officer with the state of Oregon. During my tenure with the Department of Corrections dealing with thousands of inmates, I know of only one person who was arrested with a legally obtained weapon. Every other inmate committed a crime with a stolen weapon. Judge Janine Pirro on Fox once stated that out of thousands of cases, she either prosecuted, oh, let me, uh, sorry, I missed my spot there. She either prosecuted or sat on the bench for, only one had used a legally obtained weapon. The rest used stolen weapons. Even if you're not an avid gun owner, gun owner like I am, you should stand up and vote yes for Measure 4-205. This helps protect all of our rights. The oath that I took doesn't expire when I retire. Once you take that oath, it stays your responsibility for life. It states, in short, I swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. I've had many discussions with friends who are still working in law enforcement today. Everyone I know has made a pledge not to enforce unconstitutional gun laws. Any law enforcement agency that enforces illegal laws are not standing up for the oath they took. In fact, they are violating that oath. The sheriff of your, of your county is the highest authority of law. He is not standing up for your rights if he goes after unconstitutional gun laws. That's what I have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. James Hoffman is currently retired. His background is both Army Recon and Oregon Department of Corrections. He's the past chairman and current delegate for Clatsop County Republicans. Our next guest, speaking against Measure 4-205, is Laura Allen. She's a retired attorney, originally from Washington State, and she's lived in Seaside for several years. Laura, are you there? I am. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Good morning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to reset the clock. You have 12 minutes to speak against the measure. You can use all or some of the time. It's completely up to you. Um, and I will start the clock now. 
Thank you so much, Graham, for the opportunity as a resident to talk about this measure and speak out against it. This ballot measure 4205 would ban sheriff's deputies and any other county employee from enforcing any gun laws, state, federal, or local. It would also ban them from investigating possible violations of a gun law. And of course, the county couldn't pass any restriction on any use or possession of guns or ammunition. This isn't gonna make us any safer. And just the opposite, there's just a number of situations I can envision where I don't think the sheriff would be able to keep us safe or protect themselves um, if this measure were to pass. I understand my opponent's position on the Second Amendment, and he spoke about law enforcement uh, who've taken pledges not to enforce gun laws. I, I just don't think that's true. The few places that have passed these kinds of measures, one of them was struck down when they learned what the Heller case actually said about the Second Amendment. And in other cases, as what I've read, sheriffs have said, we're not, this is just symbolic. We're, we're of course, going to enforce federal and state laws. So this, the idea that there's this movement out there of not enforcing gun laws, just, it's just patently not true. Um, on the Second Amendment, the, uh, Mr. Hoffman cited the Heller case, which is, was written by Justice the opinion was written by Justice Antonin Scalia in 2008. First of all, Justice Scalia would never have endorsed a ballot measure that undermines the rule of law and jeopardizes law enforcement. In that case, all he found was that citizens have a right to keep a loaded handgun in their home, but he upheld the requirements for registering and licensing handguns. And he made clear the government could regulate the ownership and use of handguns and could even ban guns like uh, concealed weapons or military-style guns. Uh, he made it very clear that the Second Amendment right, like any right, is not unlimited. He said the Second Amendment does not protect the right of citizens to carry arms for any sort of confrontation. And nothing, in our opinion, should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons, the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in certain places, such as schools and government or imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of guns. So he envisioned a very limited right where people could protect themselves in their own home. It, and the other thing he made very clear is that these, militia, these groups that call themselves militias, um, that, that's nothing sanctioned by the Second Amendment. Justice Scalia said in his opinion, the only militia that can be established by Congress, and that's our military or our National Guard. These self-styled militias are not sanctioned by the Constitution. So this idea that the Second Amendment requires sheriffs to not enforce gun laws is, is just it's patently absurd. And I want to talk a little bit about what this petition actually says and, and what it will mean to people. Oregon has very few gun laws as it is. It's an open carry state. Um, you can carry a concealed weapon with a permit. Um, so we, we're talking about, you know, it's pretty open anyway for guns, and I don't know why we would need a haven for them in Classic County. The idea that guns need a sanctuary is it's dangerous, and it's going to create a lot of confusion and chaos. What it will mean is the sheriff and the county employees can't conduct background checks. Um, they can't track a gun to find out if it was used in a crime or who it belongs to or who manufactured it. They couldn't enforce concealed weapons permits from the state. Um, Oregon doesn't accept concealed weapons permits from other states. So 
anyone from anywhere in the world could carry their gun concealed or open into Clatsop County with no restrictions at all. There's also just a number of situations I can think of where I don't know that the sheriff could, could keep us safe. What if there's someone waving a gun around like in a domestic violence situation or who's under the influence of drugs or alcohol or a suspect with a gun? The sheriff couldn't do anything to investigate a possible gun law violation. Think how broad that prohibition is. It's going to be really unclear what steps they can take in that situation. Can they take the gun to protect the people or themselves? It doesn't appear so unless there's a court order. And even that's not clear because in another part of this measure, it says the sheriff can't enforce gun confiscation orders. So will the sheriff even try to stop a situation like that, knowing they may get fined or sued or both? This, this uh, petition actually says that the sheriff or the county employees will be fined um, and that they can be sued civilly if they violate uh, or do anything to try to investigate or enforce a gun law. I think people won't call the sheriff if they think he or his deputies can't do anything in a situation involving a gun. That's going to make uh, domestic violence situations much more dangerous. Um, they won't be able to help a domestic violence victim get a protective order that prevents an abuser or a stalker from having a gun. They can't ask a court to take a gun or put restrictions on use of guns by people where there's evidence that they're suicidal or intend to harm others or have mental illness. It's, it's just not clear to what extent, if these orders do get issued, that the sheriff could do about them, if he could even enforce them. So it's certainly bound to reduce the number of domestic violence and stalking victims requesting orders uh, to take guns away or restrict use of guns by their abuser. They're less likely to call the sheriff. Um, it's going to make it much less likely that the county can restrict guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, people who are suicidal or who intend to harm others, what we call these red flag laws. I'm assuming that um, one of the reasons for this measure by this um, Mr. Hoffman, who is a, a Republican County, Republican Party County delegate, I'm assuming one of the reasons for this measure is that it will give some kind of haven to these extremist groups like Proud Boys or the Sons of Liberty that are here with their semi-automatic weapons every so often. You know, we just don't need that kind of thing in this county. It's dangerous. It creates a lot of division. It's also, this measure is likely to increase vigilanteism. In Corbett recently, um, there were people fleeing from the wildfires trying to evacuate, and a group of vigilantes with their semi-automatic weapons were stopping cars looking, uh, demanding identification. I, I guess they were looking for, for people of color who they were claiming had started the fires, one of these baseless conspiracy theories. It was very scary, I'm sure, for the people trying to get out of there, being stopped by people with semi-automatic weapons. The sheriff in that case was able to arrest them and stop them. I don't know that our sheriff could have done anything about something like that. So this whole idea that we need a gun sanctuary uh, is frankly just ridiculous and scary. It's not something we need right now, more guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. So I urge your listeners to vote no on 4205. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, I am going to take a quick music break while we get our next guest on the phone. And we do hope you'll stick with us on the conversation on KMUN as we discuss ballot measure 4-205 for Clatsop County. And now we will hear from Rob Taylor uh, for the measure. 
Over the past three decades, Rob has been an activist for limited government, a campaign manager, and an advisor for former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. Currently, Rob is involved in the SASO 2020 campaign, and he hosts a talk radio show, The Rob Taylor Report, which airs every Monday on KWRO in Coos Bay. Rob, are you there? I'm here, sir. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And I'm going to start the timer. You have 12 minutes, and you can use all or some of your time up to you. But I invite you to go ahead and speak uh, in favor of Measure 4-205. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to assure everyone that there are a lot of people out there who are going to uh, make exaggerated claims about what this law, the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance, does and what it does not do. And one of the things that it does not do, it does not pertain to the violent actions of people with a gun. People who commit felonies with a gun will still be prosecuted. Anyone who misuses a gun can still be prosecuted under this law. In fact, the only thing this law does is put a restrictions on enforcing state and federal gun regulations, regulations on firearms and firearms accessories that has been imposed by state and federal government. And they are continuing to pose these laws and to impose these laws and will do so until they eventually eliminate the citizen's ability to own firearms. Well, the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance, or SASO, is a measure, is a ballot measure. And it's on the ballot in four counties right now in Oregon. And those four counties are Clatsop County, your county right there, Columbia County, Coos County, which is my county, and Umatilla County. And, of course, the one in Clatsop County, your county, is Measure 4205. It's the one that we are supporting and we believe is a great law. The SASO is a new law. This is something that's new. It's not the same as the resolutions that have been passed around in other states and other cities. But this is a new law that implements a local a local layer of legal protections for the rights acknowledged in the Bill of Rights using the initiative process and a county's home rule authority to reject the commandeering of county resources by state and federal agencies. If this law is enacted, the Second Amendment sanctuary law would impose a directive ordering that the county government shall not use any county resources or employees to enforce state or federal regulations concerning firearms or firearms accessories. Any county agency or employee found guilty of violating the law would face a Class A violation plus a $2,000 fine for the employee, $4,000 for the offending agency. Now, the fine is what is unique in this law. The fine is what makes this different than the resolutions that have been passed elsewhere. The Second Amendment sanctuary, this law defends the right to keep and bear arms. It employs, and in, in fact, it encourages the idea of shall not be infringed by eliminating the local enforcement of the many state and federal restrictions limiting the ability of the individual to protect themselves, their families, and others. The Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance is unique in the fact that it differentiates itself from the feckless resolutions other counties and other states have enacted. The ordinance would punish local governments and local government officials who violate an individual's Second Amendment rights, which would eliminate and challenge the practice of qualified immunity. In other words, politicians would have to pay for committing unconstitutional crimes and ignoring their oaths of office. So in other words, this would allow 
the, the, the people who violate our Second Amendment rights to be charged with a crime. And this is important because I just had to sue the city abandoned because they violated their city charter. If I, as an individual citizen, would not have sued the city of Bandon, they would have been allowed to get away with violating the charter because there's nothing inside the charter that puts a penalty for violating the laws that are enacted by the very charter that the city council violated. So I thought this would be a great way to put a, a penalty on government officials who just do not follow the law. Currently, there's a growing trend of defunding the police disarming the citizens, and discharging the criminals, which will only result in an exponential wave of crime and death unless the electorate is willing to act, unless the people of Clatsop is willing to act. And we've seen the mob every night, day in and day out, for the last 115 days in Portland. And people who defend themselves are the ones who are getting arrested. Well, this law, the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance, will stop that. And what's even worse is that our own district attorneys, the more ominously twisted aspect of, of what's going on in our cities is that district attorneys are now charging citizens with crimes for using firearms to defend themselves, their lives, their homes, and their property from the mob. We, the people, are the last line of defense against anarchy and lawlessness. We must be willing to defend our cities and counties from criminals, looters, and rioters, and unethical politicians with the protections and values enumerated in the U.S. Constitution. The founding fathers were geniuses. They knew that at a certain point, our government and the people who are in our government and the law enforcement who's charged with our protections may actually use the law against the citizens so that the average person cannot defend themselves. Well, the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance would help achieve that goal by allowing the people to invoke those rights with more legal authority in opposition to federal, state, and local politicians who want to make their own rules. And we've seen this time and time again, where the legislature up in Salem is constantly passing laws that are restricting your ability to own the, the tools and the utensils, the accessories to these tools that you need to create, to create a, a, a barrier against the criminals. See, they're not going to take away our right to own a gun. They're just going to take away your right to, add, to access to a gun. They're going to regulate the barrels. They're going to regulate the size of the magazines or the clips. They're going to tell you that you're not going to have any Fourth Amendment right, that they can come and, and have these red flag laws where pretty much anybody can make a blanket accusation against anyone else. The police can come to your house. They can kick in your door. They can take away your guns, and you have no recourse for it. You have to prove yourself innocent when you have already been convicted of being guilty when they kick in your door. And this is the problem, and the Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance would stop it. And the reason that people in law enforcement do not want this law passed is because it eliminates their qualified immunity, and it hinders the county's collective bargaining powers. Well, my Second Amendment rights and nobody's Second Amendment rights are predicated on the county's ability to have collective bargaining powers with the law enforcement unions. And this is what they're complaining about with the Black Lives Movement. 
They're complaining about how police officers are able to violate people's rights, and then there's no punishment or recourse for these actions. The Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinance changes that whole aspect. It allows the people to once again to empower themselves by using the initiative process to pass a law that is very similar to the illegal immigration sanctuary laws. And in fact, I would encourage that the county challenge this law in court because I believe it will stand because this law and the illegal immigration law are based on the same legal doctrine, the anti-commandeering doctrine. The anti-commandeering doctrine states that any city, county, or even a state is allowed to, to keep their resources and not allow the federal government or the state government to use those resources for laws that that municipality finds unconstitutional or unpalatable for their citizens. And that's why many law enforcement officers don't want this, because they know that it's going to limit their ability to infringe on people's rights. It just makes their job easier. But if you look at the law in Sections 4 and Sections 5 and Section 6, it is a very clearly written law. There are no misunderstandings in it because the law is very clear. And it will not prevent the sheriff from enforcing any legal action against anyone, like I said, a felon who is uh, in, in access of a gun or someone who's using a gun in the commission of a crime. Those things are still punishable. It does, this law, the Second Amendment Sanctuary, does not punish legal actions. All it does is stop the enforcement of illegal restrictions on firearms and firearms accessories. So that's why I'm encouraging everyone, everyone who's in, who can hear me, that you have to defend yourself. And the one way to do that is by voting yes for Measure 4205 in Clatsop County. Thank you, and thank you for your time. That was Rob Taylor speaking in favor of Clatsop County Measure 4-205. Thank you, Rob, for joining us. And we are going to move on to our final guest for the morning speaking in favor of the measure in just a moment. But I wanted to prep you out there that uh, it looks like we'll be wrapping up with these statements well before the end of the hour. And so I'm predicting we'll have about 20 minutes to talk about this as a community. And so once we finish with our final speaker here, uh, we invite your calls 503-325-0010. You can weigh in on this. And I think the presidential debates are probably top of mind for most folks out there right now. So if you'd like to call in and, and blow off some steam about that, I certainly invite you to do so. After we hear from this final guest, uh, our next guest is Sheriff Matt Phillips. He was born and raised in Clatsop County. On January 3rd, 2020, Sheriff Matt Phillips was sworn in as the 32nd Sheriff of Clatsop County. He currently holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in Sociology from Oregon State University and is working on finishing his Master's of Criminal Justice degree from Western Oregon University. His training has included International Public Safety Leadership and Ethics Institute, Oregon State Sheriff's Association Command College, Oregon Executive Development Institute, Oregon Police Corps Academy, and countless hours of assorted training in the different divisions and disciplines within the Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Matt Phillips, are you there? Yes, good morning. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. I am going to start the timer, and you've got 12 minutes to speak against Measure 4-205. All right, good morning. Um, I guess to to begin with, um, I want to be clear that I myself am a supporter of the Second Amendment. 
and I own and responsibly enjoy a lot of the firearms and accessories that this ordinance seeks to protect. Um, but I believe that this ordinance goes too far and is specifically an attack on the duties and responsibilities of my office and my staff. Um, I think that it would uh, make legitimate law enforcement efforts uh, for my staff, sheriff's deputies, illegal. And again, that's only for sheriff's deputies, and it does nothing to uh, limit or affect the, um, the ability of the police officers and state troopers uh, in the county to in enforce existing laws. I, I think that part of the danger, too, is that it could pit local officers against my deputies and staff. Um, when they do enforce the law that could be interpreted as being in violation of this ordinance. Uh, I don't like that it would subject uh, deputies to civil uh, action for, for performing their duties under state law. Um, I, I find that this, this law is difficult to interpret. Um, you know, Mr. Taylor said that um, this doesn't prevent us from enforcing laws when, when guns are used in the commission of a crime but under Section 6B, for example, it says this amendment is not intended to prohibit or affect in any way the prosecution of any crime for which the possession of a firearm is an aggregating factor or enhancement to an otherwise independent crime. Hey, Sheriff Phillips? Yes. Can I invite you to speak a little more directly into the mic of your phone? Yes. Thanks. Can you hear me better? Okay. Anyways, aggregating is usually uh, a theory used for financial crimes where you where you add several small thefts together to make make one um, against the same victim over a period of time into a felony instead of a series of misdemeanors. So, for example, if if I committed the crime of menacing uh, by by intentionally placing someone in fear of serious physical physical injury or death by pointing a firearm at them, that crime is a misdemeanor, and using a firearm to accomplish that is not an enhancement. So as, as I interpret this law, I don't believe that the, the, the evidence, the firearm, could be seized. I'm also concerned about Section D, which says that my office could continue to issue concealed firearms, uh, you know, concealed carry permits. Uh, I worry about what happens if statutorily I'm required to revoke one for, for someone who's committed a crime. Um, that would that would be applicable under the theory that uh, that's required uh, by law in other legal jurisdictions. So if I do that, um, it'd be okay. But within our own county, that that would be considered illegal. So I definitely have some concerns. I, I think that um, these, these issues would have to be reviewed by a judge. And so far, the only judicial review of, of similar ordinances in uh, Harney, Curry, and Grant counties found that the uh, ordinance failed to meet the legal requirements to be placed on the ballot. Uh, there's three tests. The first test um, is a proposed law should be single subject. Uh, this ordinance uh, fails that test because it log rolls uh, several subjects uh, of fees, registration, background checks, possession, type of firearm, accessory, and ammunition. Uh, the second test is that it must be legislative and not administrative. And as this law is applied to the sheriff's office in the execution of our duties, it is administrative. 
And the third test is that it must be a matter of county concern and, and fails this test because the ordinance is preempted by ORS 166-170. So when we talk about the tests of constitutionality, I know that there's, there's lots of ways to interpret the laws and, and constitutionality is always uh, determined by our courts. And, and believe me, there's, there's changes to the laws all the time that I don't agree with, but I do understand and have to respect that the courts get to make those decisions. And um, with respect to other sanctuary laws, I don't think it's good policy to create a bad law such as this one, in order to attack another law. And that's all I have. All right. Well, Sheriff Phillips, thank you for your time today and uh, for joining us on the conversation. All right. Thank you. And we just heard excerpts from an earlier show that aired last month on The Conversation, KMUN's live call-in show with host Graham Nystrom. In this show, Graham talked with supporters and opponents of Clatsop County Measure 4-205, a firearms measure that will be on the ballot for voters on November 3rd. Approval of this measure would prohibit Clatsop County employees or officials from enforcing any local, state, or federal law or regulation that restricts a person's right to keep and bear firearms, accessories, or ammunition or use any county resources to enforce such acts relating to firearms. This special program is part of KMUN's November 2020 election coverage. A reminder that if you'd like to see the full rundown of our election programming, please go to our website at coastradio.org and click on Lower Columbia Pacific Region Election Coverage. That link will take you to a calendar listing of all of our election shows with podcasts and video links for past programs. I'm Joanne Rideout. Thanks for listening. And for more election coverage today, join us at 6 p.m. Tillamook listeners can join us for an exclusive KTCB 89.5 FM live broadcast of the Tillamook AAUW Candidates Forum. And at 7 p.m. on KMUN 91.9 FM, we'll have interviews with Pacific County Commission and PUD Commission candidates. That's all happening today, Wednesday, October 14th, on KMUN and KTCB.
balutua, lutua, lutua unuek luek, lutua unuek luek. Oh, no, no, no. 